Welcome everyone. We're going to give a, a moment for everyone to join and get settled in for our webinar. We're very excited to have you here um, and just give us just a moment as people trickle in from the waiting room. Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for our webinar today, um, Reimagining Healthcare, a Discussion of Current Priorities in Minority Health and How to Move Forward. We are excited for our awesome panel that we have here with us today. Um, we are here because it is National Minority Health Month. Um, and of course, that is the work that we all are doing. Um, it's very important to us. And so we wanted to make sure that we came in and had a discussion about what is important to each of us as we look at our priorities in the mental health, minority health space and how we wanna move forward in making the healthcare system so that is equitable for everyone. At this time, I would like to invite Ajwa Chibatin, our Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications at National Minority Quality Forum to just give a welcome and unveil our theme for the month. Hey, 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 everybody, welcome. To April, it is National Minority Health Month. Can I get a, a applause? You can find the little emoji or you can just, this is such a special, oh good, I see the hands raised, that's so wonderful. This is such a special month. This is a month for us, you know, all of us who are so passionate about health equity, about minority health care, before it became sexy to talk about. I know we've been in the trenches talking about this and, um, you know, it has been about 20 years as of this year um, with National Minority Health Month and our fearless leader, Dr. Gary Puckrine is going to talk a bit about that history. And so for 20 years, this is no better time than to talk about how we can reimagine healthcare that actually serves the most vulnerable, the most at risk the ones who most are in need, right? And so what does that look like? What does that utopia of healthcare look like when we can reimagine and take away all the barriers that we know exist and challenges that we know exist? When we think about that, what does that look like? And so I really invite you all to uh, visit our new website for National Minority Health Month. And I'm going to put it in the chat right now, um, but I'm also going to share my screen and you can see the website of this utopia that we're talking about. Uh, this is reimagining healthcare, right? Where we have free vaccines, not just during COVID time, but outside of COVID time too, right? Um, that we have a pharmacy that's open 24 hours that's providing clinical care. You see the doctor right there, that we have a system that um, enables care for all kinds of um, body types, right? And considers that um, in our measurement of outcomes as well, that we have a clinical care um, opportunity in most communities, 
that telehealth is available to be to provide flexible and convenient care for people who have challenging um, schedules and jobs and maybe transportation needs, right? And so um, as we as you peruse through this site, we talk about not only the history, but where we are going and how all of you can be involved. So uh, I hope you have already signed up for our newsletter and this will be old hat to you. But if not, there is that opportunity for you to do that where we're going to bring to your email inboxes um, activities, programs, partnerships that we are aware of that is happening across the country to address minority healthcare, um, healthcare for all across this country. Uh, we have our conference next week as well. If you're not coming to Washington, DC, you need to make the next time and, and make it here because then you can um, see this information presented to you. You can participate in the discussions as well as far as where we are going but our national um, annual leadership summit that focuses on healthcare disparities is happening um, next week. So you can also check back on this website for uh, recordings, videos, conversations um, about initiatives associated with the summit. This talks about special initiatives currently happening at NMQF, including this conversation about data equity and how do we even capture um, information that's impacting our healthcare system related to race, ethnicity, sex, and gender identity uh, in a way that is actually equitable. Uh, we have information about our cancer stage shifting initiative, which is all about shifting from late stage diagnosis and detection to early stage diagnosis and detection of cancer in at-risk communities. We're talking about clinical trial diversity here. Um, and, and more, right? Uh, here also, we have some social media toolkits. If your organization and entity is not already participating in the conversation about National Minority Health Month, we're making it easy for you to do so. Just download um, some of these uh, assets and upload to your social media platforms and engage and spark conversation on your respective platforms. We really want to thank all of our partners and collaborators of the summit next week and generally of NMQF, who are, are part of our corporate roundtable. We are uh, so pleased to continue to partner with them year long on various engagements. And we invite you to join us next time uh, for National Minority Health Month. And I'm going to now turn it over to Dr. Gary Puckwine to talk a little bit about how we even came here today to um, celebrate and recognize this very important observance. So thank you, Ajua and Akia and uh, Mia, as always, and Natasha and uh, others. I just want to really thank you so much for all of the great work that uh, you guys have been doing. So anybody who knows me knows I'm a historian, and uh, we always have to, uh, you know, give. Uh, reference to those who who got us here. The the African American experience is about building on on generations, right? Uh, ours has always been a generational uh, struggle, and so actually uh, it used to be called National Negro Health Week. It was founded in 1915 uh, by Booker T. Washington, uh, and at that moment he was dealing with uh, the population that was emerging from slavery. 
if you think about it for half a second, slaves didn't take care of their health. In fact, uh, their, their bodies were being used uh, to drive economies. Uh, and so there was a real need to begin to help them understand uh, how to take care of themselves and their family. And National Negro Health Week uh, lasted all the way through World War II. Uh, and it was a reorganization. The federal government uh, uh, began to take, uh, take it over uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, uh, there was journals and all kinds of things published. If you ever get to Howard University, uh, you can go find those uh, journals uh, that were written. Um, the, the story uh, after, after the war, um, it sort of subsided, uh, National Negro Health Week, uh, but the issue of disparities gets picked up in the 1980s with Margaret Heckler's report of, of demonstrating the, of the disparities. Uh, and uh, I knew this was gonna happen. Um, I've got to put out a fire. So what, give me one second here. Please hold while I try to connect you. Well, I think while Gary is talk is taking putting out that fire, probably associated with our conference next week, I will just hop in and say that whereas um, National Minority Health Month, as he was mentioning, was born out of National Negro Health Week um, in uh, 2001. I'm, I'm uh, back at you. Oh, okay. Okay. okay you want to continue? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to pick up with, uh, with Margaret Heckler uh, and her report. Uh, and uh, that documented that there was health disparities. It was a sense out there that there wasn't any health disparities. Uh, she was Secretary of Health and Human Services in a major report. In the 1990s, Lou Stokes uh, started to talk about uh, National Minority Health Month, uh, and we picked up that conversation in 2002 and got uh, Congress to uh, pass a resolution uh, making April National Minority Health Month. And JC, it was a Republican Congress, so J.C. Watts uh, actually had to introduce the bill, uh, and Congresswoman uh, Christensen uh, was the person who um, led the effort on the Democratic Democratic. Uh, democratic side. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the history. Um, and we picked up um, uh, that work uh, and began to do our first dinner was in 2002. Uh, by 2004, uh, we began doing um, it as a meeting and a dinner. Uh, by 2005, uh, we merged with the Black Caucus Health Brain Trust uh, and NMQF to do an event together. Uh, and so we ended up with that two-day uh, two event. I think um, besides telling you that history, uh, the one thing that I, I want to leave you with, um, uh, and I think about this a lot, um, in the early years, we spent all of our time documenting the disparities, that the fact that more cancer, more cardiovascular deaths, more people on dialysis, more maternal deaths, I mean, you name it, uh, every summit was, uh, was pretty much um, uh, uh, a, a listing of, of the inequities. Um, today, uh, we're talking about reimagining the system. We ain't talking about listing anything anymore. We're talking about, we wanna create a healthcare system uh, that uh, provides quality care for our community. We wanna build sustainable, healthy communities. So from uh, um, uh, the work that began in 1950 uh, with Booker T. Washington, uh, we're now talking about uh, our future. Uh, and that's what's exciting to me about uh, the journey. 
we are a generational people. We got a lot of patience. Uh, and we know that collectively, uh, we pass the baton from one generation to the next uh, in order to get us to that place where we want to be. And so I'm so excited um, at our summit, we're going to have these 40 under 40, these young people. I, I look at them and I say, I see the future in your eyes. I know exactly where you're going. Uh, and my job is to pass that baton on to you um, so that you can keep up the work of that generational work that we've been about. So I want to thank you so much. Unfortunately, as you might tell, I got to go put out a fire, uh, but I want to thank you so much for this opportunity and all the great work that you've done. Uh, and, and Vanessa, too, I want to thank you so much uh, for being a part of this conversation. Good luck to everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Puckrin and Adwa, um, for helping set the stage for this conversation that we are about to engage in. Um, so I'm Akia Blue. I'm the Health Communications Director here at National Minority Quality Forum, and it is absolutely my honor to introduce our panelists for today for this discussion. Um, I'm just going to go around the screen as I see them. So no particular order. They're all amazing. The first we have is Dr. Latasha Celebi Perkins, who is the Director of Community-Based Learning Courses and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And she is also a family medicine physician with MedStar Primary Care Fort Lincoln. We also have Dr. Vanessa Salcedo, Salcedo sorry. Um, she is a general pediatrician and assistant vice president of pediatrics and health promotion for Union Community Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center in the Bronx. And then we also have Mia Keys, who is the director of federal affairs at Hologic Incorporated. And I do want to note, um, Dr. Puckerin did give a nod to our 40 under 40s, and all three of these lovely panelists are 40 previous 40 under 40 recipients. Um, so it's our absolute honor to have them here to discuss with us today. So to get started, I would love to know um, and to set the stage for the conversation, what are your top priorities in minority health as it's related to your work? And again, I'll go around the screen. So I'll start with you, Dr. Celebi Perkins. No problem. Thank you for having us and having this very meaningful discussion during this month. Um, so I wear many hats as my title alluded to, but medical educator is one that I do a lot of work in, in this space in. And in my current job, Pipeline is where I put a lot of energy. Um, there aren't enough underrepresented minorities who are in medical school. The black male is becoming an endangered species when it comes to medicine and them entering medical school. Um, and so making sure that we are continuing to feed the pipeline, because studies show that underrepresented minorities go back to our communities and we're the ones who fight the disparities um, as a central part of our career. So I put a lot of work into the well-being and support of our pipeline, keeping it going, but also the faculty that's teaching them because they want to see people that look like them teach them and there are even fewer of us at that level. So I put a lot of energy into making sure that our pipeline stays full of talent and that that talent knows that we love and care about them. And the last part of that is that even though you're, you may not be an underrepresented minority, they still need to care about the minority health, right? It needs to be valued. And so making sure that their peers are allies that are impactful allies. Um, so that's where I've been putting a lot of my work recently. Great, thank you so much for that. It's so important to make sure that pipeline is you know, constant. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Sasseb, I'm so sorry, Salcido. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
and I am a community general pediatrician and I also have the privilege of working on community clinic initiatives. I think priorities for us and in the Bronx is uh, definitely top of that list is mental health. We've experienced a huge mental health crisis. Our patients are um, worried about financial resources, uh, economic um, stress that they feel that they don't have a place to live. They don't know um, where they're going to get their next meal from. They, they face a lot of discrimination, structural racism, um, and safety. They have a huge concern about safety and gun violence. So we have a lot of work that we're doing across mental health. Um, another major issue that we're addressing, as all of us work on, are the health disparities. I particularly focus on nutrition-related chronic diseases, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart diseases. Um, when we think about solutions, we have to increase enrollment for SNAP, WIC, food pantries, um, and my particular interest is in education on culturally adapted nutrition programs and really counter-marketing for all the bad um, options and poor nutrition that we have in, in, our, in our neighborhoods. And last but not least, um, early childhood development. We know that early childhood is a critical period for children and their foundation. So um, putting more programs into this critical time, um, increasing access to early intervention and um, preschool. So these are the things that we mostly work on and I work on luckily have the privilege to in my clinic. Great, thank you for that. And Mia, what about you? I echo what both has what, what's been said here. I'm very happy to be a part of this conversation and particularly during this month. And as was mentioned, I'm with Hologic and Hologic is premier women's health, global women's health company with respect to innovation and really just the gamut of women's health. And if you've ever had a mammogram, likely the machine on which you've had a mammogram or someone you love has had a mammogram was likely a Hologic machine. Um, but we also do work outside of the, the, the breast space. And so one of the major issues that uh, Hologic is concerned about right now with respect, especially to health equity, is cervical health. And that's everything from cervical cancer to the, the really very concerning, con disconcerting rise in, uh, in sexually transmitted infections and sexually transmitted diseases right now. On the heels of COVID and even just before COVID, but especially since COVID, there's been a precipitous drop in preventive cancer screenings. And a lot of that had to obviously do with the fact that during COVID, there was a stay in, um, in screenings and, and uh, other related prevention um, efforts in order to make room for those who were um, really very much suffering um, at the top of COVID, right? So I think that in and of itself demonstrates just how very vulnerable our health system currently is, right? And so now there, where we're getting back to screenings, we've seen that the rates since COVID have dropped about 85%. And especially when you're talking about black and brown women, Hispanic women, black women, and rural and women who live in rural areas, this is most severe amongst those protected stat, uh, protected class status communities. Um, and so 
it's it's this is where we're seeing the largest um, rates of, of cervical cancer and the lowest rates of cervical screening, right? And so, you know, just to put an additional tint on it, this is a preventive disease, cervical cancer is, and it has been prevented, it has been preventative for almost 80 years, right? But now we're going back to a space where we're seeing rises, not, as I mentioned, not only in, um, in, in advanced uh, presentation, but women finding out, you know, it, any woman, women from 21 to 65 not being routinely tested and then finding out sometimes too late that, you know, they have advanced uh, cancers. And so Hologic is really concerned. And one of the things that um, we're really very much pushing and hoping that the, the uh, U.S. Preventive Task Force, USPSTF, um, will hold on to is this idea of of co-testing um, where a woman presents for care and uh, to see her, you know, with respect to her cervical health, she's receiving both a pap smear as well as an HPV test because one uh, complements the other. And so that's, that's essentially the, um, the driving concern that we have right now, especially for black and brown women, women who live in, in rural areas, as I mentioned, and that's everyone from 21 to 65 years. The, the second thing that I'll mention is something that I imagine cuts across everything that, that the, the three of us are talking about today. And that's uh, with respect to data, right? We're, this is 21st century medicine. And what we're absolutely going to see and what we already see is the uh, increased role of, of um, artificial intelligence, of augmentative intelligence, of autonomous intelligence being a part of care decision-making and ensuring that the data that feed those systems that help providers make clinical decisions, that those are representative data in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of preferred language, uh, both written and spoken language, um, in terms of socioeconomic status for certain. Um, so those are the those are the major concerns that uh, we come with. And the last thing I'll say, and this will probably come up later on in the conversation, I serve as a commissioner um, for women in, here in DC. And when you're talking about the health of a woman, you're talking about the health of a child, the health of a family, the health of, health of a neighborhood, and certainly the health of cities. It starts with the woman. It starts with her, her, her physical and mental and emotional well-being. It certainly starts with her, um, her economic well-being. And so all of those things that matter with respect to socially determinate factors, with respect to political determinant uh, factors of health and, and empowerment, um, all of those issues matter. And um, I really look forward to digging into that today. Thank you for that. So we have a very wide range of perspective here. We're talking pipe, talent pipeline, mental health, chronic conditions, um, you know, screenings, and specifically for cervical cancer and women's health. Um, I would love to hear some more about how, and I think you each kind of touched on this a bit, but how are you working to overcome those challenges in the present day right now with what you're doing? Um, and so for this one, I'll start with Dr. Salcido. So as I mentioned, mental health is a, we're facing a mental health crisis. Um, in our community health centers, we've developed um, warm handoffs with our behavioral health providers. We have that privilege of having uh, behavioral health providers on site that are uh, bilingual, uh, culturally competent, and they are always able to talk to any patient that's interested in talking to a mental health provider. Uh, but that's 
one of the challenges, having our patients be interested in going to get help. Um, we have the stigma in our in our patients, in our community about mental health. We they think that um, sometimes it means that you have to go inpatient or you have to take a medicine. Um, so really breaking down those barriers and addressing the stigma is something else we do with having conversations like webinars like this, live webinar, live um, workshops and webinars uh, for our patients and our community to really um, help them identify some of the challenges that they're facing, really talk about it, um, because as we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit more, uh, as we know that um, a lot of the chronic diseases are affected by the mental health. So if I am depressed and anxiety, I'm not gonna take my medicine. I'm not gonna go to the doctor. So I think starting off with mental health is important. Um, but of course we have these challenges. We don't have enough mental health providers. We have the, the opportunity in my clinic, but I know a lot of my colleagues in the Bronx don't have um, places to send their patients and the lists are long. And then the major crisis, uh, which we'll talk about when reimagining is um, inpatient. When, when somebody's having a crisis, where do they go? Um, so I think um, those are things that we're still working on. We still want to work with our community and our experts throughout um, to, to address mental health. The next that I mentioned that I work a lot on is nutritional uh, related diseases, chronic diseases, obesity, diabetes. Um, so how do we address that? I think talk, a lot of these workshops that we have especially when it comes to cultural competence. Um, our pro we have to teach our providers that, you know, not everything is a kale and salmon diet, that we don't have to put all our patients on this diet. Really, it, there are a lot of foods that are great in our culture that are healthy. So we really need to change that in our providers and also for our patients and educate them uh, for that because it's all about lifestyle and what you eat. But as we all know, a lot of it is with access. So we are addressing the social determinants of health in food insecurity and nutrition security with partnering with community organizations as food pantries. And I said, like I mentioned, enrollment in SNAP and, and WIC. Believe it or not, a lot of our families are use WIC only for uh, formula, but they WIC is also to give fruits and vegetables and other um, healthy nutrition up to the age of five, but our patients um, are not enrolled in until in all the way until they're five. So these are some small things that we can do to really help our patients. And lastly, like I mentioned, um, uh, the early education. Um, we don't put too much emphasis on kids a lot of time. We focus on you know, the chronic diseases when, it, when we already have it, but we don't focus on prevention. And not only, uh, as my colleague, Ms. Keyes says, it starts even prenatally with the woman and, um, and prenatally before birth. And then when the child is born, those first three years are critical and set the foundation for the rest of their life. So what can we do and what are we doing? We're making sure that they get the right referrals into early intervention. So if they have a speech delay, if they have 
um, physical therapy, motor delay, sending them to the right services. Um, one of the things that my clinic and I was fortunate to do is start an early intervention center at my clinic so we can get those services because as you can imagine, even the, the list is long and also um, the providers, we have a shortage of um, speech therapists, physical therapists, especially bilingual therapists. So it's a lot of work that we're trying to do to address this, but when we come to realistically these small things really make a difference long-term in our families' lives. Great, thank you. Um, either Mia or Dr. Selby Perkins, do you have, you wanna jump in next? Go ahead, Latasha, after you. Sure. Um, so a couple of things I'm doing, I like to say I am a messenger and a mentor. So those are the ways that I am addressing my, the challenges um, as a physician, because I'm a medical educator, but I'm also a practicing licensed uh, family physician that sees patients regularly. Um, and as a physician, you take subjective and objective data, you process it, and then you come up with a plan, your assessment and a plan. And my job generally as a doctor and as an educator is to get that message out, to have that conversation with my patients, to have a conversation with my students for them to learn what they need to learn, right? And so in being a messenger, I want our, even our non-underrepresented um, minorities to know the value of the minority life, of our health. So when you see me, even if you are a white female, you should see me as your sister and my health should matter to you just as much as your sister's health matters to you. And so in doing that, I'm doing the, sending that message to my students, no matter where they come from or what they look like, um, continuing the pipeline uh, as a director of the community-based medicine course here. I take, I, it's the class that is med school without walls. We partner with 26 uh, community partners in DC and we get medical students into wards seven and eight uh, to see what's going on in our, our underserved areas of Washington, DC. We can't stay on the ivory tower of Georgetown. And in that work, I'm mentoring our medical students and showing them how you serve the populations that aren't being served the way they should be. And so, and mentoring fires me up. It energizes me. Anybody that has met like a, a high schooler that wants to be in healthcare, they will continue to be the, the battery in your back. And so how I overcome those challenges uh, is by continuing to mentor into the pipeline. I have fourth graders from Garfield Elementary School mini med school here at Georgetown today during a tour and just continuing to be in front of them and encouraging them and mentoring the pipeline and getting that talent in. And the, the messaging has to be for our patients, our community, uh, speaking at churches, talking to congregations about medicine and healthcare and answering questions because if we're gonna keep demystifying the healthcare system, we have to take the message outside of the hospital walls. Um, and continuing that messaging, even in my family, when COVID came and the vaccines came out, I had multiple conversations with cousins, sisters, brothers about every different kind of COVID vaccine and why they should get it. And we had, we had a dialogue. And so for me, those are my two go-tos when it comes to overcoming the challenges, continuing to feed the pipeline by being a messenger to them and a mentor, but doing that also for my patients, my community and within my family. Great. And Mia, how are you overcoming challenges in women's health care and, and with yeah. AI? Uh, I, given what, what, what both of my co-speakers have mentioned today, there's, there's not too much additional to add aside from 
um, these two things that I'll, I'll bring up. So one, in my current role as, as Director of Federal Affairs with Hologic, our intention is to engage and to identify or help to identify for members of Congress and for their staff, what are the critical issues that, need, that, that are challenges for women's health, for families' health, um, certainly here in the, in the U.S., why does it matter to their constituents and how can we help them use policy as a leverage, federal policy as a leverage to really ensure that these everyday decisions that Dr. Salcido is talking about, that these everyday, um, that, these, that these longer term systemic issues of pipeline that Dr. Selby Perkins is, talk, is talking about, how can we use policy to really in, drive uh, generational change? So that's uh, my uh, perspective. That's my um, my strategy in terms of really helping to drive a lot of the issues, making the issues very simple, but also extremely motivating for members of Congress, for their staffers. Um, because these this are the type of things that, that leaders in the policy space stake their legacy on, right? These are issues that, in, so Dr. Puckern was talking about Louis Stokes, who was uh, a congressman from Ohio, um, who had initially no um, real aspirations to become a politician. But once he did, he became the first chair, uh, African-American chair of the Appropriations Committee. He became the, the, the co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus and the founder of the Congressional, uh, excuse me, the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, all of which Dr. Puckern mentioned. And it's a, it's, a, it's a result of each of those entities and each of those positions that he held and forged that he was able to, alongside his co his 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 um, co congressional members on both sides of the aisle, to push millions of dollars into research, into pipeline programming, into preventive services, um, and ensure that these issues stay top of line for members of Congress. So my my uh, you know what I'm galvanized by. And I appreciate the way that Dr. Selby Perkins put it, that battery pack, right? So there, there's, a, there's a high school student or a fourth grader that's behind Latasha who's helping, you know, to really, for her focus, her attention on things that are beyond just her, right? There's something that's pushing Dr. Salcido beyond just her, right? I wish to be that for members of Congress. That's, that's my, um, it's a part of my life's purpose to ensure that, um, not even just for members of Congress, because I would do this without you know, the position, just ensuring that our, our congressional policies align with the future of healthcare that we envision for ourselves, right? And if they don't, or, or even sometimes if the path is uncertain or unclear, because right now we live in a really very, um, I'll say unique political environment, right? Where you see the, the politicalization of public health and, and science, right? And that should not be, we shouldn't be contesting whether or not vaccines work, they do. We shouldn't be contesting whether or not um, people should treat each other with empathy in a medical, uh, in, a, in a traditional or non-traditional medical setting, we absolutely should. Um, we shouldn't have to uh, tell sisters who are not um, uh, underrepresented minorities um, that they should look at, at, at other women and see, each, see themselves in that woman, but, but we have to, right? So um, to just show up and be a trusted voice in these spaces of power where decisions are made for our children who are not yet here, um, that's, how, that's how I work. And I do that also on the local level, as I mentioned, as a, as a commissioner uh, for, for women. It's a newer space for me. I'm still learning DC, I live in Ward 7. So I know what, you know, what's necessary um, in that way. Um, the last thing I'll say is, because I said I'll mention two things. I have a son, he's 16 months. 
and um, so I'm still a fairly, <clears throat> excuse me, new mother. And one of the things that's very important for me, for, for him, for my nieces and my nephews, for my family, is that they see the ways in which we can embody um, purpose, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean you take on the capital, although I, I stomp the capital often, right? But it does mean when you're outside, pick up a piece of trash, um, plant a flower, say hello to a neighbor, right? Because all of these things matter. And, and just like viruses, and like, uh, you know, infectious diseases will impact not just you and your household, but obviously COVID showed us they'll impact your neighbor. So too will you living at your purpose, uh, encourage and become infectious for other people. So that's another way too that I push through. Um, so not just even on the uh, policy level, but making sure that I live and breathe in a way um, that helps me to help others live and breathe better. That's great. And I mean, I think you went ahead and you started to talk about kind of your vision for a healthcare system in the future that's reimagined when you talked about, you know, not having the politi 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 politicized, yeah. <laughs> politicizing all those, all those, all those uh, confidence yes. <laughs> of uh, vaccinations and not having to tell women of color to look at a, a, not, a woman who's not of color to see herself in that. And I would love to hear more about, you know, what would a perfect healthcare system look like for you? Perfect healthcare system. So, so in addition to this being um, Minority Health Month, this is also this this time of year also, or this year rather, marks the twentieth anniversary of the Institute of Medicine's publication of their uh, unequal treatment report. Of course, Institute of Medicine is now the National Academy of Sciences, but um, within that report, and it was a seminal report. Dr. Puckard mentioned the Heckler report. Um, written by then HHS Secretary Margaret Heckler, who was a Republican, by the way, and that matters in terms of what's happening right now. Um, the, the IOM report detailed with explicit examples and data what it means to, to uh, be a racial minority in the United States at that time, and it still uh, matters today, right? Um, Revisiting the data of, of the unequal treatment report, I'm reminded that there have there have certainly been quite a number of gains, right? Um, but with respect to the specific things they mentioned in the report, chronic conditions, healthcare, uh, heart disease, or cancers, um, maternal and child health, we are still dealing with those issues today, right? So for me, a reimagined healthcare system is really having to, you know, living in a world where we don't have to have reports like the IOM report. We shouldn't have to uh, commemorate the fact that that report came out and it was a big thing. It's a seminal work, it's a tome, and it still matters today, right? We shouldn't, I don't want to have to, uh, ideally we wouldn't have to deal with that. But what we would be dealing with is, is the fact that we are very, all of us are, we, we're a race of people, but we, we do have differences and we would be able to celebrate our differences without threat of violence, without um, feeling like uh, gains made for one person or one people means zero sum for other people, right? That's just not the case. Um, an ideal environment for me would, with respect to health would be actual equity in the sense that equity is both a philosophy as well as a strategy. It means to each according to their need. Right? So a space where if you need something, it would not be a hassle um, 
or a, or a burden on the system to ensure that you had it. It would there would be no stigma associated with needing more food or with needing supports with respect to um, to to wealth building or anything like that. Um, and then finally, it would also mean self mastery, right? So it would mean that if if I were to go into uh, an emergency room and I'm wearing a specific type of clothing and I say I have sickle cell disease, I need X, Y, and Z um, uh, as as treatment, I wouldn't be uh, I, no one would second guess and say, well, maybe she's drug seeking or or something like that. So I give that example because in a lot of research demonstrates that when people of color present for care, a lot of times they have to dress themselves up, talk a certain way, so that they won't be seen as a as a as a threat or as as someone who's trying to game the system. So um, I I would imagine a space where first and foremost, the way you present is just is if you need help, you need help and you get it according to what it is that you need. And then secondly, um, it would be a space wherein uh, we could celebrate each other's differences and all of that wouldn't take away from um, what someone else also needs. And then finally, it would be that uh, that our health our health is not tied to, um, I like what, what Dr. Selby Perkins said about, you know, outside the four walls, that health is not tied to a specific health system. It would be that our neighborhoods and our um, our living environment supported our our most optimal well-being. Great, Dr. Selby Perkins, Dr. Salcedo. I'm sure both of y'all want to jump in. So, yes, I, I I'm going to piggyback on everything Keys was saying. Um, it's so important to reimagine our healthcare system, really one with our community. And I love the picture that um, was at the beginning of the program where we saw healthcare was at the barbershop, healthcare was at the pharmacy, healthcare is at our schools. We know that these are the social determinants of health, but realistically, we still haven't figured out a way to do this. And we have to go towards that. We have to put healthcare out in our communities. We have to put the education out. We have to put the medicine, we have to put the doctors. We can't put these, these barriers. And we haven't talked about this, but having access to universal healthcare, that's also very important when we reimagine healthcare for our community. We can't have the barriers if worried about like, oh, well, uh, how much is this gonna cost? Where am I gonna go? Is this hidden, hidden fees? Um, is this covered uh, for this doctor, but not covered for that doctor? Oh, I'm undocumented immigrant. Can I'm scared to go. No, we need, that should be a priority across the board when we reimagine healthcare. And I feel like it, that's at our fingertips. That's something that we can do as a country um, to really reshape minority health. So that's very important. And the social determinants of health that we were just talking about, we know that over 70% of healthcare is beyond our clinic doors as we were mentioning it. And how do we make that possible for our community to have healthy access to fruits and vegetables that are culturally appropriate to our communities and in a language and everything that they understand. And, um, and when we reimagine the healthcare system, um, somehow we have to make it easier. I'm a doctor and it's so difficult to figure out, it's like, okay, well, how do I find uh, a specialist or where do I go for this? Or it's just so complicated, our healthcare system, and we need to make it simple and all together and um, leverage technology for all our records to be together. I know my patients get frustrated by 
having to say the same history and story over and over again when they want a second opinion or for when they're seeing you for the first time. And it's, it's very complicated, even if they get to our door. So these are the things that we think about when we're making it easier for our families and our patients to, to come to us um, and, and really reimagine the healthcare system for our communities. I think there's a lot we can do. And, I, and as we mentioned this, all in this equitable, culturally sensitive way for, for our communities, especially in, in minority health. Um, and, and I think when we reimagine it, we can't do it by ourselves. We really have to listen to what the priorities of the community are. I know we're talking about what we think our priorities are, but for the community, but really listening to the communities and, and us being the voices to policymakers for our community if they can't raise their voice themselves. So I think those are some of the things that we really have to work on that will help build trust for our community. I was saying like it's so difficult for them to, to get to us. And when they do get to us, it's complicated and they have mistrust. And as we were just talking about that mistrust is increasing with the misinformation um, and the even, even due to the burnout of physicians, like they see a physician and it might be at the end of the day and, and they might not get the best experience. So we really have to figure out how to build that trust, make the system um, easier and, and a more friendly environment for our community. Dr. Selby Perkins, please. <laughs> So Reverend Salcedo and Minister Mia just preached a word. We can mm -hmm. literally like walk out. Um, but I will address this uh, this question about reimagining my immaculate dream of healthcare um, in two ways. So there's health, which is everything. Eat where you live, social service, and then there's the healthcare system, the healthcare delivery. With health, I I would want like the National Minority Health Month to not have to be a thing. Okay, that you, you, the universally underrepresented minority health is valued. As a black woman, despite the fact that I am highly educated, have access to medical care, I am still four times more likely to die in childbirth than my white counterparts. That should not be a reality here, but it is. And so I want to, our lives to be valued by everyone and everyone feel just as passionately about that as I do. When it comes to healthcare delivery, I am a family medicine physician. So primary care is what I do. And Dr. Salcedo does primary care. That's not by happenstance that we are the sisters that are here for you today. But I think that primary care should be centered in a very specific way. I think everyone should have access to our primary care physician who can help make healthcare uh, more easy, as Dr. Salcedo um, says, can be you know, we are first point of contact, we coordinated comprehensive care, and we are your family doctor. We're the ones that you can lean on. I have patients that I have delivered the baby, take care of the baby, take care of the mama, the grandma. We have a triple visit and it's grandma, mama, and the baby. Good generational care. And I think that should be centralized in our healthcare system and our delivery system. And so in my dream, I know I'm being selfish here, in my dream, that would be the center of how healthcare is delivered um, if I had to reimagine it for myself. 
and prevention. I think we focus so much on the treatment and, and, and which is important, but even more important is prevention. And we're, our system's not really, it incentivizes prevention as much as we're all talking about and how do we need to reshape that. And we should be making the most money from prevention than treatment. <laughs> so not only us, but the health system, so that way we can uh, sustain it. So how can we shift that? And even prevention of mental health, uh, how, how great would it be to have just everybody is required or suggested to have a mental health check-in with a mental health provider, the same way we have dental checks, checks every six months. I think everybody should have mental health checks every six months with a mental health provider and really think about changing you know, the view of mental health, changing the view of medicine to more of a preventative sort of way um, than the treatment procedure focus that we have today in our complicated system. I don't think that's selfish at all uh, in terms of centering family practice or centering prevention, what both of you are talking about, right? And that, I mean, you're essentially, you're talking about systemic changes, right? You're, you're talking about upstream upstream shifts, right? Which for the most part are, are costly, but they're, they're easy, right? But again, it goes back to, you know, what is the, the, the will, the political will essentially, and not even just, I'm talking about power brokers within, who, who are more invested in really trying to ensure that the status quo is, is, is established. And if that's going to be the case, we have to be really very mindful about um, ensuring that representation in you know both on the on the federal levels and 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 everywhere else are aligned with this vision you know so sharing this vision with with people who are uh, or even even ensuring that people like you who are who are in family practice are empowered politically and know how the policy how policies are built and how policies are passed into law and having that to be a part of uh, traditional medical education so that you can be, you know, take care of bodies, right, when they come to see you, but then also ensure that those stories, to your point, are represented in the, in the halls of, of policy building and, and power. I want to make sure, I'm sorry, that we have time for questions, and there's a couple in there, so if you have questions, please drop them into the Q&A, and while we see if any more pop in, just real quick, if you each could give me, you started to touch on this, but those actionable steps that you would like to see that we need in order to get this reimagined healthcare system, have it become a reality. Just quick bullet points. Okay, quickly, the voice. So be a voice in your institution, be at the table, not on the plate, like make sure that you're there. And I do that with like some of my committee work. But also uh, organizationally, for me, medical organizations are where I have my voice and I can be a leader. So organization for me is uh, American Academy of Family Physicians, making sure that I'm, talk I'm saying these same things in those realms. I am an active member of the National Medical Association, um, Region 2 in Philly. We'll see you there. Um, but making sure that those organizations are making policies that continues to move the needle in, mid um, in minority health. And lastly, uh, Mia mentioned the National Academy of Science, um, Engineering, and Math. They had a report, high quality implementation um, of high implementation of high quality um, primary care. It's already there. We have a we have pages and pages on how to implement 
primary care is centralized in our country. And so we just need, it's a matter of making it actionable. So we have the plan, we just need to do it. After you, Dr. Salcida. I would say the same, uh, just really listen to the voices and, and also um, which voices aren't you hearing? A lot of times we don't hear from the children's perspective because they don't have that voice and they're always an app. Children's health is sometimes an afterthought and also those who are undocumented. Um, so who, what voices aren't we hearing and really listen to the community and then pay attention to the voices that we don't hear. I really appreciate that you mentioned that and it's going to under underscore a lot of what or the, the point I'm trying to make, which is make sure that you're very well aware of the policies that are on the books right now. And for how long have they been in the pipeline? What are the challenges for getting a policy passed um, from, from being just a bill to signed on the dotted line by the president of the United States and, and made into law? And a lot of that too, we don't, we don't really have, at least in the United States, we don't have, for instance, a youth rights uh, youth rights legislation, right? That, that you'll see in other countries that have a similar uh, backdrop as the as as the U.S. in terms of race and and how race is patterned, or excuse me, how health is patterned by race, like a South Africa or Rwanda. Um, those are spaces that do have youth rights legislation. Um, I, I want to use that example because it's as vivid. It generally hits people right in the, in the heart when you start talking about kids. But just yes, ensure that, for instance, if you don't know about the health Health Equity Affordability, excuse me, Health Equity Accountability Act, HIA. It's a 700 plus page um, uh, tome of, of, uh, of legislation that has everything to do with what we're talking about now in terms of reimagining healthcare, ensuring that there are, are political supports for the system. Um, it's something that's introduced by the Tri Caucus every Congress, um, Tri Caucus being the, the caucus on, um, with respect to the Hispanic caucus, the Black caucus, and the Asian American Pacific Islander caucus. And so um, every year, one of the one of the leaders in the health space of the tri-caucus um, re reintroduces this bill, and it covers everything from mental health to preventive practice and the pipeline, everything that you can imagine that would take our health here in the United States and our healthcare system here in the United States to the max in terms of being able to um, ensure that everyone has what they need in an equitable fashion. Um, please make sure at, if you know no other policy, you know HIA and call your members of Congress to make sure that they are they know HIA. And if they're not supportive, ask them why. Great, thank you all so much. So let's jump into the questions. We have a few, um, Dr. Selby Perkins, I think that you're responding about if you're involved in Georgetown's Health Justice Alliance. Um, so that answer is being typed in. So our first question is, as an ally in the healthcare public relations industry, serving nonprofits and biopharma organizations, what can we do to ensure we are supporting an equitable healthcare system? Um, I'm happy to give my thoughts on this in terms of from the comms perspective and then have you all um, jump in. I would say the first thing is, and Dr. Saucedo uh, mentioned this before, make sure you're listening to the communities that you're serving. Um, make sure that you are addressing the issues that are actually issues for them, concerns for them, and um, involve and include cultural competency in anything that you're um, creating to make sure that you're using the words the stories, the people, the representation, everything that 
can, are relatable to the communities that you're trying to reach. Um, and so I, I open it up to the, our panelists if there's anything else from your perspective that you want us to add to that. I, I wanna jump in here. So in my, in my previous role, um, I, I served as the inaugural director of health equity policy and advocacy for the American Medical Association. And the AMA, I don't even have to tell you all, is almost 200 year old organization that is essentially the, the Congress of the healthcare system in the United States, right? And one of the things that we were doing when I came on board, we were building a center for health equity. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's now uh, almost four years in the running. What we were very clear about in order to, to reimagine um, the space of medicine is to ensure that the budget, 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 the internal budget matched uh, the, the words of the leadership and, and matched what it is that AMA wanted to stand for in the 21st century with respect to medicine. So my answer to this question, especially from a, from a and I'm not a political relations um, or communications expert, but in the spirit of transparency, um, if through your, through your company uh, or the companies you work with, ensuring that they are extremely transparent with the public about what their budget um, along um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, social governance programming looks like. So to be extremely upfront, if you're if if you're working with organizations that say they're about all of these things that are super sexy right now and have been since COVID, um, ask them what have they been you know to to show the public where the funds are going in support of of those efforts. Um, and and if there is no budget, again, ask why. Great. Dr. Selby Perkins or Dr. Salcido, do you have anything to add? If not, we have one more question, I believe, in here. I was going to let you get to the next question since we have like two minutes. All right. So what actionable steps can be taken for those working in academic and public health research spaces? I can say, be use your voice, be a messenger. So you are doing research that create gets data. And those that we are working against, generally like we need more data, we need more data. So using your data, using the research that you're doing and getting the message out, don't keep that information to yourself. Take it out to the community, make sure our, that way our patients when they come see us, they know this. Public health um, research is important work. And so in academics, keeping one foot in academics and one foot in the real world and making sure that everyone knows the work that you're doing. Thank you. And Dr. Salcido, anything else to add in this last few seconds? Yes. So I echo the same thing. And also what I've been saying is build the trust. So if you're going to go do research in a community, you have to build that trust. You have to work closely with them. You can't be that outsider just trying to get information and use it for yourself or for the, the academic ivy tower. So, and listen to the community for their priorities. And you might have one agenda, but they have to make sure it aligns to what they're interested in and you could work together and combine it, but it really needs to be worked together. Great. Thank you all so much for your insights and your thoughts. This was an excellent conversation. Um, to everyone who joined, thank you for taking the time to join us. The recording of this webinar will be posted on the NMQF YouTube page. Um, so look out for it and uh, share it out. Thank you all and enjoy the rest of your day.